Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. My name is Allison Gilmore, and I'm chief communications officer at the National Association of Attorneys General. In this episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox sits down with Nebraska Attorney General Doug Peterson. Well, with me uh, on this uh, podcast uh, is uh, the great Attorney General of uh, Nebraska, Doug Peterson, my friend and colleague who uh, we've been able to work together on a number of things uh, over the years. And uh, I'm going to call you General Peterson, although we're friends. And so, General Peterson, thank you for joining us for this podcast. Uh-oh. Does that mean I can't refer to you as Tim? Uh, you can, you know, I guess we can have a gentleman's agreement to, to refer to each other as Doug and Tim. That works for me. There we go. So, but yeah, thanks for joining us. And, and uh, we've got a lot of great stuff we want to talk about today. So let's get straight into it. Uh, Sounds good. You currently serve as uh, one of the co-chairs of the NAG, which is National Association of Attorneys General Antitrust Committee. And for those who are unfamiliar with the term, can you give us a brief exp- explanation of what antitrust law is and then maybe explain the historical role of state attorneys general in enforcing uh, antitrust law, not only in their own state, but collectively uh, across the country? Sure. Probably in the antitrust world, uh, the federal law, the Sherman Act that goes back to 1890 is the most uh, commonly known law that applies to antitrust. And the, I'm going to give you just a real general definition, but the purpose of the law is to prevent monopolies, uh, which it would be market dominance by a company either in uh, its creation or maintaining that market dominance, and as a result of anti-competitive behavior, uh, which results in harms to the markets and ultimately to consumers. So what we saw, Standard Oil is always the most commonly referenced case, which was back in the early 1900s under the Sherman Act. There was real concern that they had uh, such a dominant position in the oil industry that they could control prices and uh, other factors and that government had to step in. One of the things I think is kind of a helpful analogy is that we have the balance of power in our Constitution to make sure that Uh, the three branches of government are kept in balance and not one have some excessive authority over the others. This is almost as if it's the fourth branch. I think the Sherman Act and our state laws and antitrust are there to ensure that there's not a business that somehow uh, through monopoly power controls the business markets to the harm of the public and to the country. So that's a general overview. Um, And frankly, before the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890, uh, states, particularly states in the Midwest, were already forming their own antitrust laws uh, because of the concern of uh, market dominance. And so it's been around for a long time trying to be a check and balance to uh, commerce to make sure we keep good uh, competitive free markets. Well, and interestingly, Doug, uh, the Standard Oil of Ohio uh, antitrust case um, as I understand it, was one of the first times that state attorneys general banded together uh, to to work on you know breaking up Standard Oil, and that 
ended up creating the uh, the original National Association of Attorneys General. I don't believe they called it that, but that was the beginning of uh, the association that we are now members of. Yeah, it, it goes back to uh, 1907, and uh, it's interesting because uh, it actually involved the uh, Attorney General from Missouri who tried to coordinate AGs to support that uh, concern with regards to Standard Oil. And as a result of it, you're, you're exactly right. It created this association now that's been in existence over 100 years doing good work for uh, AGs across the country. In more recent times, and, and particularly during our tenure as attorneys general, do you have some examples of antitrust work that uh, – the various uh, state and territorial and district of Columbia attorneys general have uh, been working on? Yeah, you know, and if, if you don't mind, I'll go back just a little bit in time. What, what tended to happen was uh, once the Sherman Act uh, was put into effect, uh, there was a, I would say, an increase in the federal uh, engagement under this law and a decrease among the states. And that changed in the 70s uh, because what happened is that there was the, uh, the Crime Control Act that was passed in 76 that gave uh, seed money to state AG offices to develop uh, antitrust because with antitrust there's both civil penalty and criminal penalties. And so that federal money was really a big stimulus to the uh, state AGs to start moving forward in creating antitrust uh, Departments to, today we have about 225 people in the state AG offices who do strictly antitrust type of work, and then there was also a, a federal legislation called the Hart Scott Redino Antitrust Improvement Act, which then allowed states also to enforce the Sherman Act uh, along with their state laws. So as a result of that, uh, I, I really things really got more engaged in the 80s, but. Running fast forward to now, what we see is there's really, Tim, three areas where the state AGs have been engaged, either just among their own state AG antitrust staff, but most likely it's, it's a combination with either the federal authority of the FTC or the Department of Justice. Um, there was some price fixing in the generics case, which was led out by the state of Connecticut. Uh, that one was... Uh, based upon antitrust concerns that the drug manufacturers were um, making agreements on price structure on generic drugs, which, as you know, we generic drugs came to the market in order to give um, some cost savings to uh, consumers. Uh, but when they started fixing the prices, that was a classic example of uh, what would be known as a Section 1 violation in the antitrust law. And so that type of collusion behavior was anti-competitive, and the states came together and worked on that. And um, that's, it's not completely resolved, but there's been a lot of investigation done by the states. The other one that has been wrapped up was uh, Apple Books, Apple eBooks. That one was led by uh, Texas and Connecticut, included 30, I believe, 33 state uh, AGs in that multi-state. And that went to uh, the Apple Book publication process that they have with eBooks, and uh, that was one in which I think it made it, it had a significant impact on the market. Uh, that was um, helpful to make sure that uh, the market was in the publishing area was not being controlled 
uh, through one gatekeeper. Uh, there was also a significant uh, multi-state effort with regards to municipal bond derivatives. Uh, several AGs came together on that one. That one ended up with a settlement of about uh, $350 million against a number of financial service companies to, to resolve the charges that uh, they had rigged in uh, the pricing and kickbacks. Um, so that was just, those are three in the price rigging area that were pretty important. Uh, We've been charging, or we've been investigating monopolies in the area of pharmaceuticals. Um, also, one of the, the significant multi-state and federal um, partnerships was in the area of Microsoft, and that was in the 90s, uh, 19 states, and the Department of Justice brought litigation against um, Microsoft for maintaining and creating a monopoly. And the results of that uh, were really market-changing, uh, frankly, providing opportunity for several uh, tech companies to expand because of the, the byproduct of the ultimate settlement in the Microsoft case. And then one that's more frequent, probably not given as much media, but is in the area of mergers. Both the state antitrust departments and uh, the FTC work closely and the DOJ on issues with regards to whether any mergers might uh, be mergers that would improperly create a potential monopoly in the market. And uh, the Sprint T-Mobile was one of the most recent. Uh, there's also been uh, in health practices, a lot of times if you see, for example, at the state level, certain hospitals looking at a merger, a possible merger, uh, the state AGs play a very important role to make sure that this merger does not have uh, anti-competitive consequences or uh, negative consequences for um, uh, this, the local medical market. So it's pretty, it's pretty broad sweeping and uh, it, it really is in my mind as having been in private practice and not being engaged in antitrust uh, in practice and then coming to the office and seeing the importance that the attorneys general have in this field, uh, it's really uh, educated me on how important this role is. Right, and it's a it's a great check and a balance. Uh, I uh, participated in a conference call with antitrust lawyers from uh, I think there were 44 different states on the line. Uh, all of their antitrust lawyers. There were over I think a hundred people on on the phone call. And those are regular conversations that our antitrust lawyers within our offices have with one another about trends, current cases, uh, how uh, the law has changed, you know, if there's been a new decision, et cetera. Uh, and more recently, during the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, you and I have had opportunities to, to discuss directly with uh, top officials in the United States Justice Department. Uh, issues concerning uh, monopolistic or I guess it's agopolistic uh, practices. Is that something new that we can visit a little bit about or uh, is that a little bit too fresh of, of a situation? Yeah, you know, when in doubt, uh, it's probably one that we would be just limited conversations, but I think mm -hmm. certainly um, it's it's been in the media. Uh, we, uh, Tim, you and I, and uh, I think about nine mm -hmm. other Midwestern states 
sent a letter to the Department of Justice, to Attorney General Barr, expressing our concerns of what we were seeing in the meatpacking industry. Uh, it's pretty well understood that there are four primary uh, companies in the meatpacking industry, and uh, there have been some trends in the market. Uh, not, you know, COVID in some ways brought out concerns that uh, are already existing, but for several years now, there's been a change in the market as far as what the producers are receiving from the meatpacking facilities and what the consumer is paying. And so those questions uh, have really prompted a lot of um, review and concern. And so we asked the DOJ to look at it, but also we as states now have gotten a little bit organized in our antitrust uh, process to uh, see if further investigation is warranted. So this is this is something that's important on uh, in the food distribution chain. You've got producers, you know, whether it be grains or meats or whatever. But then you also have the consumers, which you know are constituents. And so it's important on both ends of the the uh, food distribution chain, isn't it, to, to make sure that uh, there isn't this kind of anti-competitive uh, practice going on anywhere in the chain? Correct. Correct. Yeah. And it, yeah, as you say, it affects both sides uh, of the market. Um, there's certainly great concerns for meat producers uh, and what they're getting for their product, the costs they're having to incur. And then I think what's prompted a lot of uh, attention is the fact that you turn around and you look at price. So producers are getting very low uh, uh, buys for their cattle, but then on the other end of the chain, uh, consumers are paying much more, and the question is what's going on by the meat packers uh, to create that disparity. That's great, and uh, you know we'll we'll look forward to to continuing to work together collaboratively, and and you know we're this is a bipartisan effort too, right? I mean we have. Democrat attorneys general and Republican attorneys general, and uh, and they're all they've all worked on all of these things you've talked about together. Yeah, and it's interesting. I was looking at some statistics of uh, meat producing states, and the only state that I think may not be interested is Delaware. <laughs> uh, but it it is it's very interesting to see um, how this type of commodity affects a lot of states. And so we've had, again, bipartisan interest in taking a look at this. Great. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, I recently spoke with General Schmidt of Kansas about his work related to combating human trafficking. And I know that you're very passionate about this work as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how your office is fighting human trafficking and, and protecting vulnerable Nebraskans? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, the human trafficking issue came to my attention because my wife Sandy and I were sponsoring a, a ministry organization that was fighting human trafficking in uh, India. And, uh, you know, it just anyone who is exposed to the, the human trafficking market and has an understanding of what's going on here is just uh, so offended by the practice and the, how it defiles uh, human dignity. And so we, um, I was surprised, and this is when I was uh, prior to seeking office as Attorney General, I was surprised to see that 
there was a panel to look into human trafficking in Nebraska that was uh, started by uh, one of the state senators. And so I joined that panel, community uh, panel, and uh, found out, lo and behold, it's not just in India. It can be in states as small as Nebraska. The problem was we did not, uh, in Nebraska, we didn't have uh, laws to uniquely address human trafficking. So I uh, addressed it on the campaign trail. Even then, when addressing it on the campaign trail, people were just um, very, very surprised to understand that this type of thing would happen. This form of slavery still existed. And at the time, Nebraska was receiving a grade from a, a national organi or international organization called Shared Hope. Uh, and they had evaluated Nebraska. I think we were given an F rating in 2011 as far as how we were addressing it with our laws and enforcement. So uh, when I was elected into office beginning in 2015, that very first legislative session, we put in much stronger laws to specifically address both labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And we also put together a human trafficking task force. We were very fortunate because one, there was so much public interest, senators strongly supported it once they became aware of it. And we also were able to um, hire as our initial director a person who was a U.S. attorney who had prosecuted in the Midwest area human trafficking cases. And so he was very aware of what it looked like. And so we put together a task force, brought in both law enforcement. Uh, we've done a lot of training with law enforcement. We've put together uh, not just in 2015, but we've put in subsequent legislation to strengthen the law, strengthen the pen penalties, uh, we've worked with service providers, so for the uh, victims of human trafficking, we can get them into the proper homes, get them into the proper programs to help uh, basically take them through counseling to get through all the trauma that they've gone through being trafficked, and uh, we've been working with prosecutors across the state. So the good news, all those efforts that uh, we've done, I would say the first two years was a tremendous amount of training, and the last three and a half years has been more looking at operations and enforcement. And so we've gone from an, an F in 2011 to Shared Hope gave us an A minus rating. Uh, we're working on the minus, uh, but we're real pleased. And I'm really uh, encouraged our focus in this office has been with, particularly with uh, law enforcement and operations. And we now are in some middle, some very significant operations that in a lot of ways, people would like to think are not in Nebraska, but you and I both know they're in Nebraska, they're in Montana, they're in California, they're in every state. And uh, it's something that uh, I know a lot of AGs have been prioritizing, and I think we're making an impact. I, I would agree. And your experience is similar, I think, to Montana's, uh, Doug. When I was elected attorney general and took office in January of 2013, uh, Montana had a D grade from Shared Hope International as I came into office. Uh, my very first meeting of the National Association of Attorneys General, as I recall, uh, was uh, Rob McKenna, the former Attorney General of Washington, was the outgoing uh, president of the National Association. And his presidential initiative, I don't remember the title, but the, the subject matter was preventing and combating human trafficking. And uh, I remember coming home and asking my, you know, my staff about, you know, whether that was something that was prevalent in Montana, you know, in a place like Montana where there are 
very few people and wide open spaces, such a large state, you kind of like to think that you don't have some of the problems that either other states have or other countries might have. And lo and behold, in talking with law enforcement officers, we were seeing not only sex trafficking, but labor trafficking in Montana. And so we also set set to work and in, in trying to change, first change our laws um, uh, to treat the victims of, uh, of human trafficking as victims rather than criminals, uh, and a lot of other changes and creating task forces and, and uh, putting resources to the problem. We just recently, uh, the legislature here in Montana authorized two full-time FTEs in our Division of Criminal Investigation to work on human trafficking cases, which uh, is going to be very helpful and has been very helpful. So, um, you know, my presidential initiative, as you know, is transformational leadership and civility, which is, you know, something that I'm passionate about, you're passionate about, and and finding ways that we can collaborate, work together, building relationships that then result in us uh, getting work done with our colleagues across the nation. Uh, but it was Rob McKenna's president, presidential initiative that motivated me to work uh, on the human trafficking problem. So there's a lot of wonderful things that we can do to work together. It's it's a uh, uh, been a, a great honor for me to work with you during your tenure as Attorney General and get to know you and your family. Any uh, parting thoughts, uh, Doug, about the importance of of uh, the Attorneys General and how they can work together? Well, it's interesting, Tim, and I appreciate uh, the effort in, and the initiative that you've made uh, in your role as president of NAG um, with regards to civility. And I, I would say that in my six years of serving, um, it's interesting because there are so many issues such as human trafficking, antitrust issues, where we understand whether Republican, Democrat, or Independent, um, the importance of us fulfilling our constitutional duties um, to, to work to basically uh, take on these challenges and recognizing that collectively as AGs, um, we can learn a lot from one another, support one another. For example, in the human trafficking area, we looked to the state of Georgia. They had some good material and they were very cooperative saying, hey, anything we can do to help. Uh, in the opioids fight, I remember the Attorney General, uh, Brad Schimmel at the time in Wisconsin said, Doug, anything I can do to help you? We, they were about two years in front of us as to what they were doing to try to prevent the opioid crisis and made a lot of their information available to us. And there's just this uh, spirit of cooperation because we're, we're taking on issues that matter and we understand that politics aren't appropriate uh, to create division. Stay, stay consistent with our constitutional duties to the law in addressing the facts that are presented to us and work together and collaborate. And that's why it's made, for me, and I, I know for you also, it's made it uh, such a, and I don't, Tim, I don't think, and I, I'm pretty confident in our friendship in saying, I don't think you created this initiative uh, because there was a problem with the attorney generals. In fact, I think you created this initiative because of what you see, and NAG has been a big supporter in this coordination, and what you've seen is the spirit of cooperation between Republican and Democrat AGs taking on some of these real significant challenges. We need to continue to enhance what we already have in that spirit of cooperation, frankly, in a political world where there's a lot of division going on. 
Uh, and so I appreciate you stepping forward to uh, basically put an emphasis on maintaining the civility so that we would be leaders as public servants uh, in showing how it should be done. Well, that's uh, well said. Thank you, Doug. And again, thank you for the time that you've given us here today. And, and uh, while we've not been able to congregate as a group uh, here since the pandemic hit, I'm looking forward to hopefully uh, seeing you sometime soon. And, and again, thanks for all your great work. And in particular, thank you for your friendship. You bet, Tim. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.